Hello and welcome to episode 348 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. We're opening up the episode with the song Behold the Bolt Surfer from the band Total Death Mechanics. The album is called The Nasty Pterodactyls. Of course, we play their music on the show with their permission. Go check them out on Bandcamp. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Of course, this sounds a little bit different than normal. I'm not at the Monster Kid Radio studio. I'm actually in the Monster Kid Radio mobile, my car, the HHR. I am leaving the Joy Cinema from this week's weird Wednesday screening of 1966's Terror Beneath the Sea. This was not a Monster Kid Radio crash. This was something that was put together at the last minute. I did bring my recorder because I was hoping to run into some friends like... Jeff Pullier and Dominique Lamsey. And at the end of the film, of course, I pulled out my recorder and we recorded a little bit about it. So you're going to get to hear that. Also in this episode, we've got a little bit of feedback. We're going to talk about the music that I play here on the show at the end of this episode. The bulk of this episode, however, features a friend of the show, Troy Howarth. Nobody can talk about scholarship of European horror without mentioning Troy Howarth. The man is an author, a film historian, a DVD and Blu-ray commentarian. The man knows his stuff. And when he suggested we talk about the movie The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism here on Monster Kid Radio, well, I was skeptical. This title doesn't necessarily sound like something we would talk about on MKR. It doesn't sound like a monster movie. It sounds like an exploitation film, which is not really something that we cover a lot of. However, he made a good case for it, and I'm glad that I checked out the movie because it's a good one. I mean, how can you go wrong with Christopher Lee? Well, actually, don't answer that. You probably can. But this movie, you cannot go wrong with. Troy Howarth and I are going to break it down, talk a little bit about it, and talk a little bit about his history with the film, and just really kind of get into it. That's going to happen in this episode of MKR. But first, like I said, you're going to go to the Joy Cinema with me to last night, a weird Wednesday, at the end of the screening of The Terror Beneath the Sea. I keep saying The Terror Beneath the Sea. It's just terror... Yeah, it is Terror Beneath the Sea. Ah, I don't know. You are going to hear from Jeff Poyer and Dominique Lamsey's, though, right after this. War gods of the deep. Are they men or monsters? Born before time began, raging up from 10,000 fathoms beneath the sea. Half devil, half fish, all evil. These are the War Gods of the Deep. Vincent Price rules a madman's empire, peopled by nameless terrors spawned of evil with the cunning of man, the body of a fish, and the ravening cruelty of the killer shark. Here in the deep, you will experience the most fantastic of adventures when you see War Gods of the Deep, starring Vincent Price, Tab Hunter, Susan Hart, and David Tomlinson. Filmed in color scope from American International, War Gods of the Deep takes you deep into the new world of terror. We let things pile up in the DVR, we add them to our queues, we wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays, we time shift. The Time Shifters Podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. 
Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. Coming from Gooey Films, an adventure like no other. From the mind of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Watson! The year is 1896, and Sherlock Holmes faces his most peculiar case yet. The mystery of the six Napoleons. Good. Thank you. Come, Watson. The game is afoot. Joshua Kennedy as the master detective. A new and exciting Sherlock Holmes. I dare call nothing trivial, Watson. Nothing. You'll remember how the dreadful case of the Abernethy family was first brought to my attention by the depth which the the parsley had sunk into the butter on a hot day. Yes, yes, we all know what you did. Bessie Nellis, Dr. Watson's most beautiful portrayer. It is clear that the possession of this trifling bust was worth more in the eyes of our strange criminal than that of a human life. Jonathan Danziger as Inspector Lestrade. Amy Ziliax as Mrs. Hudson. Also starring a cavalcade of great talent, Jake Williams, Tracy Thomas, George Chapper, Michael Rosenfeld, Will McKinley, Mark Holmes. Yes, it's quite humorous if I do say so myself. Well, there it is. Return of Sherlock Holmes. See it in Gooey School. Terror Beneath the Sea is what we just saw at Weird Wednesday. Um, what was exciting for me is that nobody here, well, at least admitted to have seen the movie before. Uh, so I was the only one. So I was able to cut out for a few and talk to Jeff and not feel like I was missing anything. Jeff Martin, the guy who runs the Joy Cinema. I'm actually standing here with Joy po- or Jeff Poyer. Joy Poyer. Wow. <laughs> it's a late Wednesday night, ladies and gentlemen. Jeff Poyer from the Poyer Graveyard. And you are now on a different podcast. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I'm doing a podcast about the game Heroclix with my group, The Brothers Problem. You were on a podcast that came to its natural end, but you're still podcasting, which is awesome. Awesome to still have you as a, a podcasting uh, colleague. Yeah, I was, I was unemployed for about a week. <laughs> unemployed? You're getting paid for this? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you had never seen this before? No. Uh, initial thoughts? Uh, it looks like they were going for a James Bond kind of audience. <laughs> Uh, the the villain was very over the top Bond esque, uh, but instead of having a secret agent, they had a reporter, which was kind of nice, you know, kind of a, an everyman, someone that can is more easily identified with. Uh, so, are you saying you identified with Sonny Chiba? Uh, well, he's easier to identify with uh, as Ken than James <laughs> Bond is. Because when I look at you, I, I get a Sunny Chiba vibe. No, I'm just oh well, you know, it's, it's distant ancestry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, I like underwater monster movies, and I know there's an explanation for what these things are, and they're not really underwater monsters per se, but I still dig the aesthetic, and I still like the uh, kind of tokusatsu thing that they're going for here, the Japanese sci-fi thing. But there's definitely that that James Bond element, like you said. 
<laughs> I want to come back to you, but Dominique Lamsey's is here as well. And when I was in the theater, um, anytime I was sitting behind her, I just heard her giggling every few minutes. <laughs> so I want to get her initial thoughts on the film. Yeah, I liked it. I really enjoyed it. It was super Japanese, but yeah, <laughs> I liked it. The uh, the colonel, the, the the military guy, general colonel, whatever he is, he's your favorite guy, right? Command, oh, is that a commander? The the one who was, uh, yeah. Vacillated between being super sexist and really psycho. Yeah, yeah. He he was so gung ho. You'd think he was in the Marines, not the Navy. <laughs> yeah. So when you say it's super Japanese, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, because there's a lot of things that some of the people found humorous, like basically the overacting. If you've ever watched pretty much any Japanese action or kaiju movie, that's how they act. There's always, especially the people in the monster suits, there's always that super gesticulating. Um, and the way the, like, the sentences were structured, there was a lot of humming and hawing that was just like in the places that a Japanese person would have said it. Okay. Um, and the monsters actually look like a particular kind of yokai. So. And what's a yokai? A yokai is a traditional kind of Japanese monster. Um, they kind of represent elemental natural forces. Okay. Um, this one looked like a kappa. For, for That name I know. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about it, but you're, you're right. I do see that in there. Um, <laughs> this movie makes me giggle and laugh in all the best ways. Uh, like my favorite film, Creature from the Black Lagoon, the female character starts out really strong and then quickly loses agency about half, eh, about a third of the way, mo- way into the film. Um, I really felt like uh, Jenny kind of, she, she's you know out there, go get her once you get the photo. I mean, she doesn't freak out the first time she sees one, she tries to take the photo, but then towards the end of the movie, oh, don't look at me, I'm so ugly. So um, what, what did you think of Jenny's character arc, either one of you? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a shame. Uh, I I would really like to have seen her be an equal with Ken rather than uh, hiding behind him. Honestly, it didn't surprise me at all, and I didn't see her as having any agency at any point. Really? Um, I don't know. Something about the personality, the way she was written, it was just like, no, she's going to end up here. Because it's not like Creature from the Black Lagoon where we get to the end part and Julie Adams is like completely falling apart and you're just like, this is screwed up. This is coming out of nowhere. This one, I don't know. It was just the way she was written or the way the actress was acting or something. I was just like, no, she's going to collapse completely at the end. Well, I can kind of see that because uh, the first time we see them in the conference, uh, when something starts going a little wrong, one of the other reporters comments, Jenny, you're white as a sheet. So you kind of see her starting to fall apart even that early. I do see what you mean. Yeah. I mean, where would you men be without feminine intuition? For real. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far, but yeah, there, there is that whole, I just have a terrible feeling about the, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Sunny Chiba, do you have any experience with Sunny Chiba? Uh, I know I've seen a Sunny Chiba martial arts film here at the Joy before. I don't remember which one, but I... Uh, he did a lot less fighting in this one than I'm used to, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't really choreographed. It was just kind of struggling. This this wasn't a martial arts Sunichiba film. Do you have? I mean, you probably out of everybody that I know outside of like Kyle, no offense, have seen probably more <laughs> Japanese media. Um, what about you with Sunichiba? A lot of experience with him, or what can you tell us about him? Um, I don't have too much experience with him because action movies aren't really my thing. 
Um, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he's a good-looking guy, oh, so, wow. you know, that works Very for handsome. me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, no. for me, the biggest association, this is really stupid, but there's a video going around right now of Keanu Reeves meeting him for the first time because apparently he's Keanu Reeves, like, hero. Oh. And I was just like, oh, that's so great. But, yeah, that's, like, that's the big Sonny Chiba association in my head right now. Look that up. See, for me, it's, it's the movie True Romance where uh, Christian Slater's character watches a lot of the Sonny Chiba Street Fighter films. So that that's the only real connection I have to Sonny Chiba other than knowing that Tarantino has a thing for him. And apparently Keanu Reeves does too. Uh, the choreography in this year, right, was just a lot of, let's wrestle around a little bit and, and, and let the camera go back and forth between our faces over and over and over again. <laughs> I was a little surprised to see blood, though. I was, I was kind of, I forgot that you do see some blood spurting in this. A which, little bit of gore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't really expect to see that. Um, final thoughts on the film. Uh, I'll start with Dominique this time because I so opened with you. So, <laughs> um, there was a Gilman slap fight, <laughs> which was awesome, um, and it was nice to see like kind of a Japanese monster movie that was geared more for adults. It just seems to me like the ones I always see are kind of for kids. Hmm. So this one was again they had the little blood and but yeah I liked it. Uh, yeah, I liked it too. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I did pause during the movie you know i thought i could pause the movie but uh i opened up my phone to imdb because i really thought the commander might have been lance legault uh who i mainly know from my childhood he was uh, the colonel on the a-team that oh. that pursued them okay. and it's not okay. um but boy did he remind me of lance legault uh but oh my gosh he, he i'm amazed the submarine didn't sink because he chewed through the walls <laughs> <laughs> he was eyes. His eyes are like bugging out of his head constantly. <laughs> oh yeah, he was um yeah. and and the other journalist, you know, Bill. Who <laughs> I, I get the impression is a lousy journalist. He just kinda hangs out with the other journalists when something happens, he's there to kinda oh yeah, you know, kind of guy. <laughs> um No, I, I I dig the movie, like I said at the intro, so um this was not an official Monster Kid Radio crash. It was just kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing that I brought my recorder and ambushed it to Monster Kid Radio regulars. So thanks for doing this, guys. Uh, this is probably the last time I'm going to see either one of you before the holidays. So happy holidays to you both. And uh, thanks again for all your support of Monster Kid Radio this year. Thank you, Derek. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, Dominique. And happy holidays to everybody. <laughs> Filmed on a spectacular scale in breathtaking Technicolor, here is the bone-chilling motion picture the critics have called a classic shocker, The Mill of the Stone Mill. Why do beautiful young women suddenly turn to stone? Against this eerie background, a twisted mind has plotted a series of sadistic events you wouldn't believe possible until you see them. It's a corpse. Handsome Pierre Brice and Europe's fabulous new star, the extravagantly beautiful Sheila Gabel. They say that trouble began with a woman, and you'll see why in the terrifying mill of the stone women.
You've never seen anything like the mill of the stone women. For until now, no one has dared tell such a shocking story on the motion picture screen. The Stone Women is the entertainment event of a lifetime. Don't miss the mill of the Stone Women. Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for Cast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes, now what is it that qualifies two southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain, and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi we, Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, Yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Dr. Frankenstein found the secret of life, but he lost control. Now in a screen thriller, Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks his monstrous creations. Fantastic creatures break free. See Rosanna Brazzi, Michael Dunn, Edmund Purdom, and international beauty Christiane Royce in Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. This is Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. I've been trying to come up with a real clever way to open up this discussion, but but I've got nothing. I'm running dry. I I am kind of blown away by the movie we're talking about here. So, Troy Howarth, welcome to Monster Kid Radio, man. Well, hello. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, welcome back, I should say. Yeah. Uh, We are talking about a movie that 
you're a huge fan of, and I'm going to admit, I've never seen before watching it for this recording. And uh, I'm, I'm a little ashamed to say that it took me so long to get around to it. Yeah, it's one of those movies that's uh, it's kind of been, well, I mean, obviously it's been around for a long time, but it used to be kind of a, a staple in the bargain bin VHS era, although it's been known by you know a thousand different titles. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people know it under different titles. Just depends on which version you've seen. Some of those titles include things like Castle of the Walking Dead, which sounds like a great title. Uh, the Snake Pit and the Pendulum. The Blood Demon. Some newspapers had to call it the Crimson Demon because they couldn't use the word blood. Hmm. Uh, I think we're going to refer to it as the Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism today. Oh, I think we should. I, I think that title is very difficult to talk. <laughs> it really is. And I want to be honest, that's kind of one of the reasons why I, I never really got around to watching this movie. I've been aware of this film for so long. I did what most monster kids and movie nerds did in the 80s and 90s. I worked in video stores. Uh, I worked in a couple of blockbusters and then a couple of regional franchises as well. And I've seen this VHS on the shelf repeatedly. And it's that lurid cover with the woman chained against the wall kind of cartoony looking mm -hmm. and i just felt like you know this isn't something that's speaking to me <laughs> maybe it was the word sadism and i was you know a little bit more prudish back then. I, I don't know but it just never reached out and grabbed me i wish it had I mean, that's a failing on my end because wow this movie kind of blew me away yeah it's one of those little gems that a lot of people don't seem to uh, be very familiar with i mean my exposure with other people in, in terms of how they react to the film is seems to be either people really, really like it a lot or I've run into some people who didn't care for it. I mean, that's inevitable, but uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think because it has all these different titles and for a while, as you say, there was the VHS, I think it was through Magnum video, uh, which was called the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it had the very lurid cover and, uh, really probably put i'd say probably put off the audience that would appreciate it and probably disappointed the people that would be drawn to a cover like that <laughs> it's a really good way to put it uh, and I th magnum i think this sounds about right this sounds like something they would have done I i'd have to go online and double check but that sounds about right just do a google image search for torture chamber of dr sadism and it's going to pop up i've been looking for movie posters of this thing so i can do my monster kid radio photoshop stuff to try to make a good cover image for this episode and i'm i'm that's the one that keeps popping up. I'm not going to use that one, but that's the one that keeps popping up. It's, it's hard to miss. Well, there's some really nice uh, German and European uh, poster art out there for it. So hopefully you'll you'll find something good. There's there's some very appropriate <laughs> kind of covers that really captures the tone of the movie much better than that. Because I suspect that I'm sure that the way these things are done, whoever designed that cover probably never saw it. They were probably just told, you know, we need a cover for Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. And, and there you go. You know, it's kind of a vaguely sort of S&M type cover for it. <laughs> it definitely was a different era when it came to home movies, you know, home video and home media, the way they would do the cover arts. I mean, there's something about that style of art that just kind of grabs you mm -hmm. or, or puts you off, depending on, on where you kind of end up on the Dr. Sadism line, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... The, my uh, first exposure to it actually was through another VHS from back in those days. It was a um, there was a label. I think it was called Interglobal Video. It was one of many companies that specialized in bargain bin videos, titles that were um, not under copyright. So they're public domain, and uh, 
they had it under the title of Castle of the Walking Dead, and that's how I first saw it. Now, to be clear, I don't think this is in the public domain. No, no. I don't know okay. if it ever was. They may have thought that. Of course, at this time, we're talking in the 80s. I don't know. It was it was a different time, and could be that it was easier to get away with that sort of thing back then. But nowadays, no. It, it is, uh, it, it's, to the best of my knowledge, it is under copyright. There's a very nice German DVD release, which... If you're ever able to find it, I can highly recommend it. It's, it's the best-looking version that's available. I'd love to get my hands on that. From what I understand, there's a couple of 8mm uh, yes. versions of the movie on there. Yes. Uh, I've seen pictures online, screenshots. The picture looks great. It's a nice copy, and it has both the English soundtrack and the German soundtrack. And uh, um, I'm sure as we talk, I'll get into a couple of the differences there as far as the music is concerned. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the music, too, because it's certainly very distinctive. <laughs> But uh, it's uh, yeah that that's the ver- that's the version to get and hopefully I I keep telling different companies that I've done work for as far as doing commentary work and things like that that this is a title you really should be looking into uh, I hope somebody I'd love to see like Arrow or or somebody like that put out a really nice version of this film Wow a remaster of this on Blu-ray would be great because there's some really cool imagery and cinematography here Yes absolutely that it. it- deserves that yeah it would look i don't great. know if listeners can hear that but my cat just found the cricket toy so every once in a while you might hear a cricket in the background <laughs> it's appropriate i suppose but just so listeners know anyway <laughs> it happens. Uh, but no it looks really good the cinematography in this some of the shots the way it was put together especially the first half of the movie and then maybe like the last quarter of the film mm-hmm. there's some really beautiful camera work oh absolutely i mean i think that uh uh, I can say that, for example, uh, it, it was reportedly the first gothic horror film made in Germany after the war. Did a little bit of research on this in anticipation of doing this. And uh, uh, I want to give a special shout out to Jonathan Rigby uh, for his book, uh, Christopher Lee, The Authorized Screen History, which is uh, really the definitive book on, on Lee and his films. And uh, he uh, he's somebody I certainly whose opinion and uh, statements I trust implicitly. So if he says it's the case, I'm sure it's true. Um, it seems to have been very openly, overtly influenced by uh, especially Mario Bava and the Italian Gothic strain that was going on at that time. Uh, very, very openly, as you can see at the opening of the film, it, it has very overt uh, homage to sort of uh, the beginning of Black Sunday. Having just seen Black Sunday, I totally saw that and felt that vibe that there's a lot of, I guess, for lack of a better adjective, Bava ness mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to, to this. Uh, you know, and of course, the hammer influence and, and just this gothic thing going on. It's a beautiful movie, man. It really deserves. Okay. The title, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. It, it's a loaded title. It's going to make you think and feel certain things, and it's going to grab your attention. That said, I feel like the movie deserves a better title. <laughs> it is, you know? Well, the, the German title, and you'll have to forgive my pronunciation because I'm not German, nor do I pretend to be. But uh, if I can try to read it here, was the Schlagengrube und das Pendel, uh, which does translate as the snake pit and the pendulum. And the credits listed as an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe. Now, of course, the movie has virtually nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. But there is a little pit in the pendulum sequence uh, that goes on, and there is a snake pit, so it is an honest title, if nothing else. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I saw the uh, Edgar Allan Poe credit, and I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. But Well, they did that all the yeah. time uh, in, in those days. Uh, 
they can't do that. I'm sure they can't do it nowadays uh, with Stephen King because Stephen King is still among the living. But uh, perhaps when King is gone, they'll start making all these movies. They'll say, you know, based on Stephen King's this or Stephen King's that. Uh, they did that a lot in the 60s because of the Edgar Allan Poe films from uh, Roger Corman, the AIP series that uh, he initiated. And uh, after Corman left after the Tomb of Lygia, AIP continued to foist Edgar Allan Poe references onto movies that had nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. So you have War Gods of the Deep, for example, or the American version of Michael Reeves' Witchfinder General, which they shoehorned in as uh, Conqueror Worm. There was a, um, a European Italian-French Poe anthology called Spirits of the Dead. That is Poe, but nevertheless, uh, that became part of the AIP series because uh, AIP took care of the American distribution and even added the Vincent Price voiceover to it. So those were ingredients that were very, very popular at that time. Uh, If you could put Edgar Allan Poe somewhere on the credits, it didn't matter if it was true or not. They even did that with um, Castle of Blood, uh, the Barbara Steele, Antonio Margariti film from 1964. There again, Poe's a character in the film, but uh, they say, you know, based on Edgar Allan Poe's Castle of Blood, which, of course, he never wrote such a thing. <laughs> well, and if you go even further back, you go back to Universal's The Raven with Lugosi or, or The Black Cat. I mean, the, oh, yeah. the, the connections to Poe there are just very tenuous at best. I think it was Boris Karloff that said about The Raven that the, the, the only connection to Poe was the bloody stuffed raven on Lugosi's desk. And I think that's probably about Pretty accurate. Much. But, uh, but the Black Cat, at least, um, I'll say this much for it. I mean, certainly it's a great one of my favorite films, but it does kind of capture the the obsessive spirit of Poe, if nothing else. So uh, fair enough on that on that front. But uh, yeah, absolutely. You can go back further than that during the silent era. Uh, there were Poe adaptations, of course, but there were a lot of films that are just kind of yeah, we'll put Edgar Allan Poe's name on this, and it'll give it some legitimacy, for example. I, I think that sometimes was the thought process, too. Sure. And like you said, I'm sure it'll happen with King. Well, it kind of even kind of sort of happened with King with the Miss TV show, where the it has yeah. very little – anyway, we're kind of going off track here. Uh, <laughs> but Edgar Allan Poe's Pit in the Pendulum, which is a great short story, by the way. If if you haven't read it, and I can't imagine Monster Kids have not read it or been exposed to it in audio form or, or some other film version, go back and read the original story. It's fantastic. And you do get this great pendulum sequence, which appears at the end of this film. And it's, it's pretty good. I mean, it works. I felt some tension there. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with adapting Poe is, of course, he, he wrote in short form. And so... Uh, you know, what can you do? You, you, Edgar Allan Poe will, will write the last third of your movie, uh, whereas Richard Matheson or Charles Beaumont or whoever will write the first two thirds. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's usually how it goes. Yeah. Here, Edgar Allan Poe is, is very, very tenuously connected. As you say, it basically boils down to a sequence where our, our hero is strapped down to the floor and a pendulum is, is set uh, down to uh, cut him in half. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That's your Poe connection right there. Pretty much, yeah. The rest of the movie, and you have to do this when you adapt Poe. Like you said, it's a short form. It's a short story. The original Pit and the Pendulum, you really don't know a heck of a lot about any of the characters. Really. I don't even know if they have names. But in this, we have this elaborate backstory that I fell in love with. This is a really cool setup. <laughs> what, what happens with Christopher Lee? I mean, Christopher Lee opens the movie, man. You got him at the very beginning of the film. As a monster kid, how have I not seen this before? Well, I'll tell you the funny part about that is, um, I'm sure we'll talk more about this later on, but the version that I first saw, which was called Castle of the Walking Dead, was cut by about 20 minutes. And that whole 
uh, pre-credit sequence was removed. It opened with an abbreviated version of the credits, which actually stripped Poe's name out of it, uh, reduces the credits down to like, I don't know, it's a Christopher Lee uh, is given top billing in this version, and then uh, Lex Barker and Karen Dorr and a couple of other people, and then the director, and that's it. Uh, so the, it was funny that they actually, they removed in this version that I first saw uh, the star's first scene, <laughs> which is a very important sequence. Yeah. Uh, the movie still makes sense without it. I mean, you get enough backstory from, you know, it being talked about, but why would you, rem- it'd be like removing the prologue to Black Sunday, which, you know, is, is a, a very much a homage to, but uh, yeah, that's a strange thing. Lee, Lee's role in it is uh, typical with him in that uh, a lot of films that he did, his roles tend to be small, but his presence is strongly felt. That's the case here. But why cut out one of his one of his scenes? You know, it's uh, it's a bizarre choice. I don't know if I'd like the movie as much if I didn't get to see that. That's a shame. They cut a lot of good things out of that out of that version. Uh, the, the, a lot of the scenes, of the journey, which is the best, I think, the best part of the film. Uh, they they chopped out a big chunk of the movie. I remember when I fr- finally saw the. Um, yeah, I think it was actually a dupe of the Magnum video version, which which has the uh, video-generated title, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. Uh, I was shocked when I was watching. I was like, I've never seen any of these scenes before. There were a lot of scenes that were missing. Huh. Well, what a treat would that be, you know, to have a movie that you enjoy and then find another version of it that has all this extra material in it. What, how fun would that be to find something like that? I mean, they always talk about finding the uh, the footage of Lugosi as a monster speaking and Frankenstein and mm-hmm. things like that. How amazing would that be? And you've actually been able to do that because there's a decent release of it out there of this. And Lee does as good a job as Lee does in at least some of the Hammer Dracula films. It doesn't look like he's phoning it in. I mean, it's it's a good performance. Oh, no, he's good. I mean, I think he really had it in him to be bad. You could tell. That's true. You could tell sometimes, and I, I, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily blame him. When it gets to a couple of the Hammer Dracula sequels and uh, uh, a couple of the Fu Manchu sequels where, you know, it's just there really isn't much for him to do. You do kind of get that sense of boredom a little bit, but uh uh, here, I think he does a, a very good uh, performance. What what struck me about watching the film again last night in anticipation of this is something that almost, I think almost has to be a coincidence, but I, it almost felt to me like Lee was kind of patterning his performance on Ferdie Main in The Fearless Vampire Killers. He reminded me a lot of how Ferdie Main played his scenes in that film, that very sort of passive, stone-faced kind of thing but i don't know that that's possible because uh fearless vampire killers i'm not sure when it came out in 1967 but it's probably not likely that lee had seen it at that point but of course too ferdy main was also kind of uh lampooning lee so i guess maybe it just all connects together somehow but that's what he reminded me of last night was this he, he gives this very very stony very cold very um i think deliberately flat kind of line readings for the most part, which works. Uh, but he only really kind of loses it at the end when his when his plans are once again being foiled. Yeah, you'd think Chris Frilly would learn. Yeah, he should. <laughs> but he does get to say, now my revenge is complete, which uh, I think he got to say that probably about a dozen times in, in a dozen different movies. <laughs> I know he's no longer with us, but I'd like to believe if he was, that that line would be his ringtone because yeah. he said it so many often, so often, you know. Oh, yes. Well... My first exposure to the film came about because my my late mother, who was also a fan of these movies and was a fan of Christopher Lee, found a copy of it. As I said, it was the 
uh, I think it was Interglobal uh, VHS. It, it was one of those recordings. I don't know if you remember. There were three speeds. There was the um, uh, EP, which was like you know the the worst. LP, which was right. in the middle, and then there was uh, it was SLP was the best. I forget, but it was S- SLP and EP were kind of the same. But there was like SP, EP, and then LP. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember. Well, was, I remember very it well. It was recorded in the middle one, so it was you know you knew it oh, wasn't quite. Ooh. It wasn't top line, but it wasn't it wasn't the worst. The worst either. I don't remember if she gave it to me for Christmas or if it was just you know sort of a random. Here I found this uh, movie for you. But when I saw the cover, I, as a kid, was much, much more prudish than I am now. So this cover was, was uh, you know, kind of with these women strapped down to the slabs looking half naked. It had a lurid quality to it that I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to watch this. It's kind of funny in hindsight that my mom would buy me that. But she knew these films and liked them and knew that I liked them. But I saw that Christopher Lee was in it, and of course I love Christopher Lee, so I said, okay, I'll go ahead and watch it. And I was just absolutely mesmerized by it because it does have this very fairy tale kind of quality to it. It's, it's very much like a Grimm's fairy tale. In many respects, although it's a very creepy film, it's also a very, dare I say, good-natured movie. It's not really particularly violent. Without wanting to spoil it too badly for people who haven't seen it, not too many really awful things really happen in it. It's more about the atmosphere and the kind of overall air of uh, suspense and anticipation. It's not a uh, real blood and thunder kind of movie. Despite the title, I I agree. It's, it's got its moments. And I mean, we talk about sacrificing virgins and things like that. And there's some drawing and quartering, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, (laughs) but, but it's relatively bloodless. And some of the scenes that they really could have gored up, they cut away. It's all done in shadow. So yeah. it, it does have that fairy tale quality, especially during the, the journey section where they're going to the castle. So that's just an amazing stretch of footage there. I mean, the, the, uh, the locations that they used and, again, the lighting and the uh, camera angles and uh, every, everything else, it just creates this wonderful I, – I could have watched an entire movie that was just the trip. <laughs> in, a way, yeah. in a way, once you get to the castle, although I like the stuff that happens to the castle, it's not as good. It's just, you know, it, it kind of slips a little bit into uh, kind of been here before, seen this before kind of a thing. Whereas the trip to the castle is very absolutely unique in many respects. I, I just think it's an extraordinary long sequence. Again, very, very cut down in the Castle of the Walking Dead edit where large chunks of it were just removed. And uh, so when I, again, when I saw the longer version and saw those scenes and those images, it was just like, wow, I can't believe they cut this stuff. I would want to spend more. I mean, even the characterizations, the characters just hanging out with them, going through this, experiencing the forest, for example, or the, the trees and such that they're going through. It's it's wonderfully done. We were talking about Mario Bava, but I can't help but see a little bit of Terrence Fisher in this as well with that kind of fairy tale-ish kind of thing going on here. It's enjoyable, although some of the music does kind of slip a little bit here for me, but overall. <laughs> well, the music, I guess this is as good a time as any to talk about the music. The music is... Uh, it's a love it or hate it proposition, and I, I love it. I have to admit, I, it wouldn't be the same movie without it. And uh, it is a strange score. Um, it's not unusual for the composer Peter Thomas, uh, who who did a lot of the Edgar Wallace creamy films. If you're familiar with them, a lot of the uh, the films of the '60s into the early '70s, he composed a lot of the scores for those, and he had a very offbeat kind of approach, as you can tell. 
what I, I know it's one of those things when I first saw it as a kid, the, the music certainly jumped out at me because this was not the kind of music that I was used to from Universal Films or Hammer Films or whatever. Not surprisingly, it ruins the mood for a lot of people, but I, I absolutely love it. Some of the music is available as part of a couple of different Peter Thomas uh, CD compilations, and I'm not going to lie, I find myself listening to it a good bit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't dislike the music. I mean, I'm a film score geek. Listeners of the show know, and I can hear everybody's eyes rolling now as they're listening while I start going on and on and on about music scores. But I love my film scores, and I would love to get my hands on the score to this. I do like it. It just, I think, where I kind of struggled a little bit was the transition. There's not an easy transition from, you know, the music that you'd expect in a movie like this to the happy-go-lucky <laughs> music that they use in the end credits, too. It just kind of slams together. The funny thing is, and, and this, this gets a little jumbled, and hopefully it will make some degree of sense, but <laughs> the, the, the cut version of the film, Castle of the Walking Dead, um, uh -huh. actually does retain the music as it is supposed to be uh, in terms of uh, there is music over the opening credits. That's not on the English uh, dub of the long version. Uh, that just plays out with uh, Christopher Lee walking down the corridors, and you can hear the footsteps echoing and the bell tolling outside, which is very atmospheric, but there's supposed to be music there. For whatever oh, okay. reason, that's missing on the long version, but it's on the short version. And at the end of the film, uh, when you know they're riding off into the sunset, basically, the long version, for whatever reason, cuts back to that really jaunty, you know, da, 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 theme that, that plays yeah. over the beginning uh -huh. part of the of the journey. It's not supposed to be that music. It's a different, much more somber and appropriate uh, end piece of music that's used over the, the, the shorter version. And also, I should say, if this is another reason that the German DVD is really nice, they have the German track on there. So you you can switch back and forth um, the two tracks and the, the opening titles and the end sequence if you just switch over to the uh, German track because there's no dialogue. You're not going to lose anything. You can hear the music as it's supposed to be. Okay. So that's unusual. I don't know whose decision that was. I don't know that anybody connected with the film made that choice. Uh, it's a very bizarre choice because particularly at the end, it's very, very <laughs> it's very jarring when that, that very happy-go-lucky piece of music comes back up, even though it's a happy ending. Uh, yeah. Not to spoil the movie too much, but... That's the other thing about this film, though, too, in terms of its... Uh, I don't want to use the word tame, but there aren't a ton of victims piling up here. I mean, the people that get away at the end, I mean, it's, it's a good... I, you know what? I never know where to draw the line when it comes to spoilers. But but our lead characters get away. I mean, it's it's not like well, it is a fifty year old film, so I guess yeah. Um, well, there's, there is you that can always too. put, put on too. a spoiler thing at the beginning uh, for people. Oh, I will. I will. Basically, the yeah. only people that I mean, with the exception of the coachman who who dies of a of a heart attack, so it's not like he's butchered or anything like that. Um, it's only the bad people that die. So right, good people live, and I mean that's. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm one of those people. I don't mind a good downbeat ending. I, I like a, a downbeat ending when it works. But this is this is one of those movies where, you know, yeah, uh, basically you could say, and, and again, kind of uh, uh, typical of, of uh, a lot of the Hammer films uh, and some of the Terrence Fisher films before the late 60s kind of pessimism creeped in in movies like Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. But basically the good people live and, and uh, good good comes out over evil at the end. 
Sure. I want to back up just for a second, not to sidetrack too much. You used the term creamy, and well, I know what that is. I don't know if all the listeners really know oh, what yes. a creamy film is, just to kind of give people some context. Not, not to denote a texture, <laughs> but it is <laughs> K- K-R-I-M-I, <clears throat> and that's German for, for crime. Um, there's a, a British author named Edgar Wallace, who's probably best known today for being uh, involved in the writing of the original King Kong. But he had a very long and uh, very profitable career. He was kind of, I guess you could say he was sort of the um, Stephen King of his day in a way, or, or you know, somebody who was maybe more in the mystery vein than horror, but um, very, very popular, but especially popular, it seems, in Germany. And so in 1959, a company called Rialto Film started producing a long-running series of movies uh, known as the Creamy Films. Again, K-R-I-M-I Films that uh, were based on Edgar Wallace, and they're all slightly macabre murder mysteries, um, you know, castles and, and estates out in the misleading countryside, filmed in Germany, but supposedly set in England. So you have all these kind of um, very Teutonic-looking people going around, but, you know, being called Sir John and things like that. But as a matter of fact, uh, the director, uh, Harold Reinel, who directed this film, directed the first entries in the series. And uh, as the series went on, it became a little bit more colorful and, and grotesque. And in fact, um, you know, if you're familiar with the Italian Giallo films, which are, you know, again, lurid murder mystery thrillers, there's a major connection there between the creamy films and the Giallo films. So it all kind of, you know, there's, there's kind of a chain of influences there, which kind of goes around in a big old circle. So um, quite a few of those films were made. I can't remember how many off the top of my head, but there, there was the official Rialto series. Uh, and then there were knockoff entries by other companies as well. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, there's, uh, there's definite connections there between those films and this one because a number of people who worked on Torture Chamber, Dr. Sazam, were also involved in those movies as well. And they have some great titles. You know, I'm just looking at the filmography of Peter Thomas, the composer of Dr. Sadism here. And, you know, I want to know more about the music because I did like a lot of the music. I'm seeing things like The Zombie Walks, yeah. you know, and Dead Body on Broadway. I mean, these are some great yeah. titles. Yeah, well, uh, the, the Hound of Blackmore Castle and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, the Hunchback of Soho, you know. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Um, uh, uh, one of my favorites is uh, originally called the Blue Hand, but uh, also known as Creature of the Blue with the Blue Hand, and released over here as the Bloody Dead. So lots of, <laughs> lots of good stuff there. I love the title. It's very pulpy. Mm-hmm. It feels very pulpy. I love it. Yeah, that's what they were. They were very pulp thrillers. Again, they were kind of a link between. If you wanted to draw a link uh, chronology, you know, you have this kind of classical murder mysteries. Uh, then the film noir, then the creamies, then the Jallo films, and you know, arguably, ultimately, also the slasher films. So they all kind of connect into one another. Can we talk a little bit about the cast? Uh, we, we've got our male lead, Lex Barker. It's, he's an American, isn't he? Oh yes, Lex Barker was an American. You can understand why he became very popular in Germany. Um, he was the, <laughs> he was the Aryan ideal. This was a big, strapping. Uh, he was. I think he was about the same height as Christopher Lee, so probably about six foot four. Uh, but strapping, handsome, blonde, blue-eyed. I mean, you know, this guy became a big, big star in Germany for obvious reasons. <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far, but yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he he's a good actor, too, I have to say. Uh, he, oh, sure, he had been, sure. He had worked in Hollywood. He had actually played Tarzan. He was married for a time to Lana Turner. 
Uh, in real life, apparently not a very nice guy. There are some pretty disturbing allegations about him and uh, Lana Turner's daughter uh, that he, you know, he he was he was an alcoholic and okay. uh, some allegations of, of bad behavior uh, down through the years, abusive behavior and things like that, especially when he was drinking. But he went over to Italy and did La Dolce Vita for Fellini, just a small part, but basically kind of playing himself. He was the American abroad with a drinking problem. And the success of that film and the kind of art house credentials of that kind of eventually led him over to Germany. Again, uh, he was the ideal German leading man, even though he was American. Uh, he just fit the kind of strapping hero template to a T. And he ended up doing a lot of the, um, the Winnetou films, uh, for example, or Old Shatterhand and things like that. These were the, uh, the so-called sauerkraut westerns. And you don't hear as much about them as you do the spaghetti westerns, but the, these were German westerns. Uh, he was in a lot of things like that. He was in a lot of German spy films and, and things like that. To the best of my knowledge, just thinking off the top of my head, I think this may have been his only horror film, although he did end up doing, I think it might have been his very last thing before he died rather young. Uh, he had a heart attack on on the streets of New York, as a matter of fact, just dropped dead in the streets, I believe. He did an episode of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, uh, which was set in an old, an old West saloon. And a really, really good episode, as I recall. And uh, that's kind of vaguely horror. But other than that, I think this may have been his only horror film. I'm, I've looked over his credits. I don't know a lot about him. And I was fascinating to discover that not only did some American actors go over to Italy and, and kind of make it big in that area, but to have this guy go over to Germany, I didn't realize that that was another route that a lot of these folks took. And just looking at some of these titles, I want to know more about these sauerkraut westerns. I love my spaghetti westerns, so I want to see how they hold up. Yeah, some of them are pretty good. As a matter of fact, uh, funnily enough, I mentioned Winnetou, and I don't know that a lot of people know this, and I didn't know it myself until relatively recently, but... Uh, a number of different actors tested to play Winnetou, who was a, a Native American uh, character. And uh, Christopher Lee was actually one of the actors who tested for it. There's, there is a picture of him in the Winnetou getup, uh, which may sound outrageous, but I, you know, I think he could have probably done a good job. I'm sure he would have played it with dignity and, and not made it into a stereotype. But they ended up casting a French actor named uh, Pierre Bryce, uh, who you may remember from an Italian horror film called uh, Mill of the Stone Women. He ended up playing with it too, and um, okay. Lex Barker played uh, in in some of those films as well. He was always, I thought, a very reliable actor, if not a great actor, a reliable actor. You know, he could be relied upon to just come in and be very stoic and very manly and macho, and just do what he needed to do to uh, uh, make sure that the law and order was restored. He carried this film just fine. I, I totally bought him as the heroic lead. The, the romantic lead when need be totally on board with that and i thought his chemistry with karen door was great and karen door wonderful yeah well karen actress. door made a big impression on me as a, as a young <laughs> oh i young bet, person, I bet. <laughs> although you know i was probably too young to understand it but she wears some very form-fitting uh low-cut cleavage uh showing uh, dress in this film and, uh, yeah, that made an impression. Uh, she's probably best known for being in uh, You Only Live Twice, the, uh, the last of the Sean Connery Bond films until he came back for Diamonds Are Forever. Um, she played a, a bad girl in that film, but she did it very well. She was also in Alfred Hitchcock's Topaz. In her personal life, she was actually married at the time to the director of this film, Harold Reinel. Uh, they got divorced the following year. 
but they've been married from 1954 until 1968, and they had a child together, and they worked together in a number of movies. As a matter of fact, uh, she did a very, very good uh, creamy with him called The Sinister Monk, which I highly recommend. Okay. But she was, um, I think, uh, still active, as far as I know, still doing some work uh, for film and television, mostly in Germany. Um, She's more of a stage actress these days, I believe. But uh, she never took off as an international star. It looked like in the late 60s with The Only Live Twice and Topaz that they were trying to build her up. But it never quite happened. I'm not sure why. She's very beautiful and a very good actress. But it just didn't. she just didn't find that right role, I guess, to, to make it. It didn't help the fact that, you know, frankly, Topaz, although it was a Hitchcock movie, she was, wasn't particularly good. Although she's very good in it. And she does participate in the film's uh, one big uh, memorable moment. So... Um, yeah, uh, very attractive, and uh, again, married to Harold Reinel, and uh, I'd say Harold Reinel was a lucky man. And he had done a number of those uh, one or two films as well, didn't he, yes. as the director? Yes, he did. Um, he directed the first uh, first couple, at least. Um, he also did a, a number of the creamy films. He kind of wanted to turn himself into a kind of uh, uh, a successor to Fritz Lang. You know, he specialized in commercial mm. entertainments. As a matter of fact... He even directed a couple of the Dr. Mabusa sequels. Uh, he did The Return of Dr. Mabusa and The Invisible Dr. Mabusa. And um, kept active in all different kinds of, of genres, did all kinds of different things. As far as I know, this was his only horror film. Although, again, some of the creamies are kind of borderline. You can make a case for them to you know, arguably be horror films, like The, the Sinister Monk, for example. Uh, he also made a very rather famous documentary called Chariots of the Gods uh, from 1970 which kind of sought to explain how some of the great wonders of the world, like the, the pyramids, for example, were possibly the result of extraterrestrial influence. Uh, Peter Thomas did the music for that uh, as well, and uh, he and uh, he and Harold Rhino worked together a number of different times. Unfortunately, Harold Rhino came to a very, very sad end. He, uh, after, marry, after getting divorced from Karen Dorr, he married another woman, and... Uh, he had reason to regret that because uh, she was an alcoholic and she ended up stabbing him to death in 1986. Oh, sad, that's no good. Sad end. Sad end. Uh, well, on that down note. Oh, well, in, in his time, in his time, uh, a uh, you know prolific and uh, I think good director. He, he made some very good films. I think he did a very, very good job with this film in particular. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, uh, he billed himself as Dr. Harold Reynolds when he directed Chariots of the Goddess. Do you know if that was <laughs> legitimate? I don't know. I, that's one of those weird things. I know that in, in Italy, for example, Dr. Uh, sometimes is used as like a, a, um, a title of respect. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a medical doctor. Uh, I don't know if that's the same in Germany or not. I don't know if he had any kind of uh, background like that, so that I'm not sure. He also directed a movie that I actually really like uh, from 1974, Deadly Jaws. I'm a big fan of that film. Oh, okay. It's a fun fun little adventure movie. Horse Johnson's in yeah. it. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but uh, Captain Kronos, basically. Yeah, yeah. I like that one quite a bit. So. Yeah, I mean, he kept, he kept active. He was busy. I mean, one of those guys who just probably never was taken as seriously as uh, he might have liked, but uh, he just went from film to film. I, I don't think ever really, you know, initiated many projects himself, but a good, good working director. And if you look at his credits, three films in 62, three films in 63, two in 64. And so he was constantly working. So good for him for that. Yeah. And I think you're right. This has got some great direction in here. And I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love this movie. Well, there's a lot of good mobile camera work, um, interesting camera angles. Um, 
it, it's not a very it's not static it's not uh, stuffy it's actually it's it's uh you can tell i mean if if he if he was indeed openly trying to mimic mario bava that he was he had studied those films to a certain extent had taken notes about the lighting the art direction and the camera movements and, and tried to incorporate some of that uh, the other cast member that I, I really wanted to ask you about, because I don't know anything about this guy, but I feel like I should. Uh, Vladimir Medar. Medar. Yeah, I don't know how you pronounce the last name. I always say Med- Medar. Um, I'm not sure if that's right or not. I uh, don't know a ton about him. He's He was Yugoslavian. He died in 1978. He died rather young, but I, I couldn't find what the cause was. He was only in his mid-50s. But Yugoslavian did do a number of German films, also worked in his native country a good bit. Um, he showed up in some spaghetti westerns. Uh, he was in Sergio Corbucci's Grand Canyon Massacre, for example. Uh, he has a, a little unbilled role in Tonino Valeri's Day of Anger with Lee, Lee Van Cleef. Um, he, I guess, you know, people thought he looked appropriate in Priest's Garb because he actually plays a priest in Fiddler on the Roof, which is probably the biggest film he was ever in. Only other horror film that I know of that he appeared in was a, a, a movie called Castle of the Creeping Flesh. Uh, has nothing to do with the Christopher Lee Peter Cushing film from 1973, but it is um, not a good film. <laughs> I have to admit, it came out. <laughs> oh no! It came out on Blu-ray recently. It's one of those. It's an absolutely gorgeous edition from Germany. It looks so good, and I wish that kind of care could be lavished on a movie like this instead. It was made by a bunch of people who were connected with the uh, Jess Franco movies that were made in around 1967. Uh, but Franco himself was not involved, and his presence is sorely missed uh, because uh, Adrian Hoven, who directed it, really does so with a very uh, unimaginative hand. But uh, Howard Vernon stars in it, and uh, Jeanine Renaud, who was a very bewitching presence from Succubus and uh, a couple other Franco movies, is also in it. He plays a kind of brutish butler in that film, and uh, he does okay, but it's, you know, it's not much of a film, and I wish he had had an opportunity to show up in more of these films. I, I think uh, I think he's very good in this movie. He plays a guy named Fabian, who uh, you know initially he's uh, calling himself Father Fabian. He says he's a Monsignor, but of course we find out differently. He's very good, and whoever dubbed him, I think, also did an outstanding job on the English track. They they really captured the uh, there's there's a kind of warmth and um, avuncular quality about this guy that even though he's a bit of a scoundrel, you, you can't help but like him. I loved him. I thought he was great. I loved the character. Uh, when he does reveal that <laughs> Roger's suspicions were correct, or the, the the kind of sort of accusation he makes in the film earlier, when he does reveal that, yeah, I'm not really a Monsignor. I'm, you know, I'm just a highwayman. Yeah, you know. well, I love it. It's a great scene. I love yeah. when um, when they're they're in the uh, the crypt, I guess, and there's a cross, you know, that has gone missing, and nobody even mm-hmm. says anything to him, and he just says, "I didn't take it." <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, real sly, real, real sly guy. <laughs> yep, yep. Which you know, I think lends to this the, the charm of the movie. I mean, you've got the strapping hero, you've got this loud, over the top kind of sidekick. You've got the the romantic lead. It's a fun ride. I would say that once you get to the castle, while there are some moments where it kind of seems a little less, or maybe even a little bit more pedestrian, mm-hmm. a lot of what's happening in the castle feels like a dark ride at a carnival with the lights on. Yeah. 
And it's it's still a fun time. I, I just prefer the lead up to that and then the very end. Yeah, I do too. Well, I mean, if we speak about the the cast too, I mean, uh, he's not in it a ton, but uh, there's a very familiar actor who plays the coach driver. Uh, his name okay. is Dieter Eppler, a uh, German actor, mm-hmm. and uh, he had some of uh, he had some other genre credits that may be of interest. He did a, a German horror film from I think 1959 called The Head. Uh, he was in a couple of the creamy films, but he's probably best known for horror fans. Probably, as far as I know, the only time he ever played like the lead in a movie was an Italian horror film called Slaughter of the Vampires. He plays the Ooh, vampire. Okay. He plays the vampire in that. Uh, as far as I know, that was his only starring role, and uh, yeah, he does fine in it. I mean, it's not a great film or anything, but if you want to see the coach driver from this movie, uh, Donning Fangs and playing a lead, check out Slaughter of the Vampires. Which is a great title, if nothing else. Yes. You know, I'm looking at the credit list for a lot of these guys, uh, the filmography, and I, I feel like if you watch this movie, you're going to get a sense of what maybe some of what the German film industry was like, because so many of them appeared in each other's movies. You've got the director directing them in previous films or later films. It's almost got this, the film itself that we're talking about, Torture Chamber, Dr. Chasem, Dr. Sadism, it's got this kind of troupe, this film troupe kind mm-hmm. of feel. And yeah. I don't know if that's just a side effect of the fact that the film industry in that part of the world at that particular time might have been smaller than what we saw in Hollywood or and they had to work with each other or what. But there's well, this nice yeah, you get, camaraderie. You get that also. I mean, you could say in, in England with Hammer and Amicus, for example. Yeah, yeah. Or in Italy as well. You get. I mean, what it usually comes down to is when somebody shows up and does their job and isn't a prima donna and doesn't cause problems, they're inclined to want to work with them again. It's like with Mario Bava, for example. I think in general, if you see in his films that he only worked with a particular actor once, there probably was a reason for that. Um, You would tend to have a lot of different character actors come back again and again. Indeed, Christopher Lee did two films for him and was set to do a third, although unfortunately it didn't work out. So usually it's just a lot of it comes down to professionalism and reliability. If, If you can be counted on to come in and do your job, and do it well, then uh, they'll they'll keep bringing you back for more. You know, we kind of glossed over the other female in this, uh, the, the blonde. Yeah. We want to talk about her at all? I mean, I know she was in Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks. Yeah, but... well, that was my big revelation there, because I never okay. realized that myself. <laughs> uh, it's an actress named Christiane Rooker. Uh, she plays Karen Dorr's servant, Babette. I always loved that name, Babette. Well, not surprisingly, did a lot of uh, sexy movies in the 60s and 70s. Um, she did a Radley Metzger movie called Carmen Baby, for example, which is a pretty uh, glossy and classy piece of erotica. Yeah, I mean, you know, worked pretty steadily, did a number of different movies up until just a few years ago. As far as I know, she's still around. Um, she probably probably registers the least among the, um, the main ensemble, but um, very pretty girl, very attractive. And uh, yeah, I mean, she does what's called upon. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't really focus on her when I was talking about the cast. I mean, she's there, she has a role to play, but it's not... I'm not I wasn't overly invested in her. I did expect her to be one of the people that did not survive just because of the way her character seemed to be in the background, but, you know. Yeah, no, all, all is well at the end. Well, as usual on these things, of course, it's often it's the villains that stand out. So, of course, in this movie, mm-hmm. we have we have two two great villains, two fine actors, two great villains. We talked a little bit about Christopher Lee, and and of course, Monster Kid is no mon- you know Christopher Lee. Now, who who doesn't know Christopher Lee? Who's listening to this show right now? He does a great job in this, but his assistant, he was a creepy dude. Carl Lang, uh, he plays uh, Anatole. 
And uh, I never realized this before. And, uh, you know, watching the movie again, I've seen it so many times, you know, just sometimes things are hidden in plain sight. You see him at a diff- few different times in this film, some of them in disguise. And I'm not sure if that's meant to be that he's putting on a disguise or if it's just that they didn't have money to hire somebody else. So they just slapped different facial hair on him at different points. <laughs> but um, let's assume he's supposed to be under disguise. I never realized until just watching it last night, you actually see him during the opening uh, whenever uh, Christopher Lee is being strapped down to be quartered by the horses. Um, you can see him standing on the sidelines with the guy with the peg leg um, watching. He has sort of a period wig on. So, um, of course, he was uh, Count Regula's servant, so it makes sense that he would be there. And as we learn, he was hanged, and so he's come back with this kind of uh, uh, neck brace thing on and uh, a very stiff manner, but very, very creepy indeed. Um, he also, I, I, I can't swear that it's true, but it surely looks like him to me. There's, there's a scene in the film where... Lex Barker stops in this village and sees a religious procession, and there's a priest lugging this giant cross on his back through the square. Uh, that looks like Carl Lang to me. I, I'm pretty huh. sure that's him, uh, again, with some facial hair. doesn't make sense that that should be Anatole in disguise, though, so I'm guessing, you know, maybe they just hope nobody would notice. Um, but, yeah, uh, so he, he pops up a good bit in the movie. Uh, he arguably gets uh, a lot of the best bits, and in some respects, even uh, his role allows him a little more screen time and, and even allows him to eclipse Christopher Lee in some respects, in that he's really wonderfully just very, very creepy and um, a vile kind of a presence. There's that great scene where uh, he's he's terrorizing Babette, and then uh, Fabian comes over and, and shoots him, and uh, his reaction of just wild laughter and everything else is, is really good. Uh, and Fabian comes to realize that he's not of this earth. There's, there's some kind of crude animated special effect where the bullet hole in his chest heals itself back over. And uh, so he's obviously, and he also one put to bring uh, count regular back. He cuts his wrist and green blood comes out. So yeah, not a normal guy at all. No, it's <laughs> a very solid performance. The, him taking a bullet great scene and his reaction him just laughing as fabian's kind of losing it for a moment there fabian's reaction where he almost crosses himself with the guns and i thought he was gonna you know shoot himself (laughs) you know he lost his sanity check right there and just boom uh but another moment that i really like with carl lang i think this happens twice there's a shot where we're looking down the hallway and off to the right carl lang's facing the camera kind of hiding around the corner and he turns to go down or look down or go down the hallway away from us because he's got the broken neck he's very stiff but it's so slow and deliberate and just creepy there's something about that movement that is yeah, it's, it's really it's scary. Yeah, very much so. A very good actor. Um, you know, another guy who did a ton of movies um, from the 50s to the 90s. He, he died, uh, in, I think it was 99 he died. So he was pretty active for the better part of, of his life. Did a lot of stage work. Um, he's another actor who showed up in a bunch of the creamy films. He was in The Hexer, for example, and uh, Creature with the Blue Hand, uh, which, again, is one of my favorite ones. Um he also did a Robert C. Odmack film called The Devil Strikes at Night, which was nominated for oh. Best Foreign Film Oscar. So he got around a good bit and, uh, you know, again, always reliable, always dependable. Uh, I This was my introduction to him. So anytime I see him in anything else, my mind just automatically goes back to this character in this film. 
Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I want to know more about him. I want to watch more of his his work, whether it's a horror movie or not. He just seemed like a very solid actor. And, you know, you said maybe he kind of outdoes Lee a little bit. And I think Lee probably wasn't on set as long as everybody else because, I mean, he was the name. No, no. But Um, but still. He didn't start his work on the film. Again, going from Jonathan Rigby's book, the the film was shot from the middle of May uh, until the early part of July of 1967. Uh, Lee didn't come on until towards the end of June. So he was probably only on the film for a week or two at the very most. Um, again, not uh, atypical with Christopher Lee because uh, you'll see this a lot in his filmography. And it's one of the reasons he was able to make as many films as he was is that, you know, usually he would make a film and he would only be on it for a week or two. And so as soon as he was finished, you know, he was booked solid all the time. He'd finish that up, he'd go and do something else and do something else. So uh, kind of like Klaus Kinski in that sense. I mean, just did a lot of, of movies. But a big part of the reason he was able to make as many as he did was that even though very often he was the star and he had above the title billing and everything else, he might show up for a little bit at the beginning, a little bit in the middle, and then a lot at the end. And then, he, I mean, look at the Dracula films. I mean, for God's sake, yeah. most of those films, he's not in most of them very much. Um, but, I mean, he makes such a vivid impression that you kind of think that he's in it the whole way through. Yeah, exactly. Not that he needed to be in it the whole way through. The impression that he makes in this film, I really love his Count regular character. I mean, before we got together to record this, Troy has been sending me messages on Facebook. You know, that's not an energy drink. I'll make sure I revisit <laughs> Count Regula. And I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> now I'm glad that I do because Count Regula is such a great villain. Yeah. Well. He, even, you know, when they draw and court him at the beginning, they put this mask on him and – I didn't know what I was in for when I started this movie. And they put this mask on him. He's got this smiley face on it. I'm like, okay, here we go. But even that works. And uh, man, Count Regula, man. I want to know more. I want more stories with Count Regula. Yeah, well, they could have done more. I mean, they could have done the whole backstory with the uh, the 12 virgins that he kills and and, and all of that. I get a sense that he's kind of a scientist slash alchemist and uh, obviously an all-around bad dude. Uh, Count Regula as a, a character name is one of those names. It's kind of like what George Lucas did to him in those those dreadful Star Wars movies where they call him Count Dooku. I, yeah, just I don't need to comment on that. But this, this name maybe it's maybe it sounded more reasonable in German. I don't know. But when you hear it now, it, I, that's why I was joking. It just sounds like it's you know some sort of probiotic or something. He's Count Regula. <laughs> Um, he play, again, he plays it very straight and serious. He could always be relied on that. He, he was not prone to, I'm not knocking Vincent Price. I love Vincent Price, but Vincent Price was known for kind of winking at the audience. Lee did not do that. Uh, right. he would, he would play it very straight and serious. You can see that particularly not to get too far off track, but they did a film late. Uh, the last film they did together was house of the long shadows. And uh, Price gives this very flamboyant, very camp performance, and Lee is dead serious. And, and Lee stands out for that reason, because he was always a credible menace. Um, if he was playing the bad guy, you believed that he was dangerous. If he played the good guy, you believed that he was he was reliable. As a matter of fact, uh, going with, with uh, the chronology of Lee's filmography, um, he came to this film uh, after having completed his guest star role on uh, an episode of The Avengers. 
Um, and then he, directly from this, he went back to England to do The Devil Rides Out. So he went from playing Count Regula to playing the Duke de Richelieu. So there's a study in contrast for you. Wow. Now, I, the, the fan fiction part of my brain wants to see those two go at each other. It's just, yeah. You're pretty good. I'd watch <laughs> Yeah. I'd watch that. So Count Regula is, like you said, an alchemist scientist all around bad dude, which needs to be on a t-shirt. Yes. Um, <laughs> Count Regula is is doing these terrible things, trying to extend his life. We learn later he's trying to extend his life and all this, and he's doing these terrible things to these virgins. When he is found guilty and sentenced to death, they make it a point. You know, it's not going to be hanging. It's not going to be simple. Mm-hmm. We're going to draw and quarter you. And then what a, a terrifying... <laughs> Well, I'll way tell, to go, man! I'll, I'll tell you what the the way they filmed that was very smart because um, obviously it's it, it wouldn't have been Lee himself; it would have been a stand-in, I'm sure. Um, the, the guy with the mask strapped down to the floor. Although on the English track, and, and it bears bears noting here that when Lee first started doing um, European, Italian, German, you know, French, various different films that were involved dubbing. He didn't have it in his contract uh, originally that he was to do the dubbing. So very often they would go ahead and uh, because he didn't actually live in those countries, if he was to participate, he would have to be flown back and and they wouldn't want to pay for him to fly back. So they would get somebody else to dub him. Um, After doing The Whip in the Body for Mario Bava, which he really he liked that film and he liked Bava very much. He was very disappointed when they wouldn't fly him back from, from Switzerland to do the dubbing. So he put it into his contract that he had to do the dubbing. So the, the movies from then on, he did. So that is his voice on the English soundtrack. But uh, when he's drawn and quartered, uh, again, cuts away from the gruesomeness, but it, it conveys it very, very beautifully because you you have the, uh, the horses rearing up and you have his awful scream, and that is Lee's scream on the soundtrack. If you've watched enough films with him, you'd recognize that. It cuts to a drawing. Uh, of you know the guy with the wooden leg in town talking about the terrible legend of Count Regula, and there's that very crude drawing of the, the the arms and the legs being pulled out of their sockets. I think that probably conveyed the real horror of that better than a, a special effect would have done. Oh, definitely. Considering special effects technology at the time, and I'm sure the budget and what they could and could not put on screen in fear of not getting good distribution. The way they put that together, I mean, you see the body get lifted off the ground as the horses start to move, but there's this snap cut right to that drawing, and you can't help but think that that snap happens just as the body snaps apart. It's a very violent kind of yes. hitch in the face kind of effect with the editing. Very well done. And, yeah. you know, that mask on the face, yeah. obviously yeah maybe they did do that maybe that was historically accurate but it's also a way to kind of hide the fact that it's not christopher lee anymore uh, so we have a double in there well, yeah. what they don't do what they don't do as well as they could have done it's something that maybe is lost on some people because it's not filmed as effectively as it could have been in black sunday mario bava went to great lengths to make it clear to people that that mask had spikes that that mask was was being you know, hammered onto her face and the blood spurts out and everything, which is very shocking for 1960. There are spikes in his mask, and that's why his face is very pockmarked when he comes back. Um, there, there are literally spikes on there that uh, drive into his flesh, although it's not hammered on this time. They just strap it on. Uh, they could have made more of that with a little bit like Bava did with the subjective camera work with the, with the mask coming towards the face and the light playing off of the spikes, but it plays out in such a way that 
I, I, I'm sure a lot of people don't even realize that there are spikes inside of that. Mask. You know, because I just saw Black Sunday last weekend, actually. So I was hyper aware of noticing the spikes in the mask. But you're right. It's done so much better in Black Sunday, the way they, they really drive home the point. I do appreciate, though, that when we do see Count Regula later, he does have the marks from the mask in there. In fact, when we do see Count Regula later and he's in that glass case, I mean, that... <laughs> That was just creepy. Uh, you know, just he's just laying there, you know, his torso and his body, his arms and legs laying where they would be, just waiting to be attached. Yeah, well, that's a neat effect, which I'm sure was, was done crudely, but it's it's filmed well where the, the parts sort of pull themselves in. And uh, presumably there was just a puppeteer underneath that slab that uh, pulled strings that <laughs> pulled the dummy together. Oh, Looks it good, really though. does. Works well. After they quarter, draw and quarter count regular, we go forward, what is it, 35 years, I believe is what they say, and we are now yeah. dealing with some of the descendants of the people that were involved in Regulus' death and the victims, you know, that's yes. Roger and uh, uh, Lillian uh, come in, and it's it's Regulus' yeah. vengeance and acting vengeance on them, now his vengeance is complete, and there's this elaborate setup to get them mm. to the castle. Roger doesn't know anything about his history, and he's lured, lured in with promises of learning about his identity and his family. And Lillian, yeah. the Baroness, it's an inheritance that she's told she has at the castle? Yes. Yes. Uh, she's She is told that uh, she's going to go collect her inheritance. He's going to learn about his past. Um, of course, inevitably in these films, the, the descendants always are the spinning image of their. Oh, of course. <laughs> of, their of course, that makes it easier too. You can just put a mustache on Lex Barker and a, and a wig and have him play two roles for the price of one. That works well. The, the Fabian character is just kind of there by on chance because uh, they're they're heading towards an area that he wants to get to, so that he can hold up this uh, this inn and get some uh, some money out of it that way. So he's just kind of along for the ride and gets a lot more than he bargained for. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Uh, he has an experience. Uh, they all do have an experience. That at the end of the movie, there's even this comment from Karen Dorr. It was all a dream, wasn't it, Roger? Like, well, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it depends how you want to look at it. But uh, I don't I don't think it's real. <laughs> I'm inclined to think yeah, me it too. happened. But, yeah. of course, it's very fairytale. I guess uh, Fabian does make out at the end, though, because it's sort of implied that he has Babette on his arm. So, that, that's you know, true. That's true. There you go. Found, found more than money. <laughs> found something worth more. I don't know. It's a stretch. Yeah, there you go. So as they're going to the castle to, to figure all this out, this is where I think the movie sings because we've got this long journey. And yeah, and young music aside, which the more I think about it, man, when I think about the music from this movie, that's what's running through my head. Is that happy, cheery, sunny music. So <laughs> I, I guess it worked. But this whole sequence, you know, is where the movie well, sings for me because you have such a great, Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to spend more time in the, in the coach. I mean, it feels like the lead up to a great haunted house story. Well, it's, it's the ultimate kind of uh, fantasy forest. Uh, uh, it was filmed in, in uh, Munich and Bavaria. And uh, I'm not sure where the actual, uh, forest was at. I know that they shot in a, a really beautiful town called Rothenburg, which is where you get all those wonderful old buildings and the cobblestone streets and all that stuff, which that's production value right there that was totally outside the realm of the budget. So that was very smart, uh, finding a place like that that was kind of preserved uh, and in period. Uh, the forest, of course, is just you know perfect, and I'm sure they piped in a good deal of fog and mist 
and there's just these extraordinary hallucinatory moments where there's you know body parts in the tree there's uh you know the the, the crows and the uh the vultures and uh they go through what looks to be like a place of execution and there's all these bodies hanging from the trees and it's very creepy and very spooky and good use of sound effects too with howling dogs and wolves and whatnot on the soundtrack and you know, again, it's it's kind of ideal late night fare. You know, turn out the lights and, and watch this movie, and it's. Uh, I think it's. I think it has some nice creepy moments to it, especially during that part of. The oh, film. I agree. I I did kind of double take my screen when I thought I saw a body part hanging from the tree, and then I realized, yep, that's exactly what I'm seeing. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like arms and legs and everything else, just sort of. I don't know why, but you know why not? It's good. yeah, <laughs> it's good. I I agree, and you actually have some random body parts pop up in this movie throughout the entire thing. In the snake pit, there's an arm just just there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very very jaundiced looking arm, uh, and uh, there's um I don't know what's supposed to be in the corridor at one point. There the vultures are fighting over some hunk of meat. I don't know if that's supposed to be an animal or. Is that the coachman? I don't yeah. know. I'm not sure what the remains are supposed to be, but uh, that's as gruesome as the movie gets. Uh, but you know, again, this is this is kind of um, you don't want to say it's horror for the whole family, but uh, it, it certainly compared to a lot of the films that were being made at that time, it, it definitely does restrain itself. But I I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it just it, it that's the kind of film that it's setting out to be. So yeah. you know. It's, it's not a problem. Do you know how the movie did when it was released? I don't really know as far as uh, the uh, big picture, how it did. I don't think it was as popular in Germany as they were hoping it was going to be because there was a lot of expectation with Lex Barker and Karen Dorr and Christopher Lee all being together and Harold Rhino had directed a number of popular films. I want to say that it wasn't as successful as they thought it was going to be and that probably explains why you know they didn't team up again and do something else along the same lines um it probably played throughout the 1970s at various different drive-ins and, and so forth under a variety of different titles again you know torture chamber dr sadism and the blood demon and, and uh, as you said it was called what the crimson demon you know, some places advertised it that way because of the title was too strong they they probably trotted it out at the bottom half of, of various different double and triple bills I think a company called Hemisphere put it out uh, at, at one point or another in the U.S. and probably put it out in one of those kind of, you know, blood triple bills where they probably had one of those Filipino, you know, Mad Doctor or Blood Island movies playing with yeah, it. Yeah, it was released here in the States as a double feature with Mad Doctor from Blood Island, which is a, a very different type of movie, different type of vibe. Um, yeah, so I don't know which played first, so. I, I suspect this one was probably the bottom one, unfortunately. And I don't think a lot of those companies really put much thought about, you know, <laughs> do these two movies belong together? Uh, I don't think they gave that a lot of thought. I'm fascinated by the practice of these double features, putting different movies together. And that's something that I would love to do an episode on down the line at some point. But so, 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 so yeah, we'll put a pin in that one for a later episode, listeners. Uh, uh, the, the blood demon or crimson demon, that was a result of the practice of not wanting to use the word blood in advertisements and newspapers. So you'd end up with things like the crimson demon or uh, crimson would be used in a, in replacement of the word blood in a lot of these uh, during that time. Well, yeah, I know another Christopher Lee movie that he did around this time. As a matter of fact, it might've been, I think it was right before, not long before he did this one. He did a film for Terrence Fisher called Island of the burning 
Damn, yes. it was called, and then they changed it to Doomed on TV. British title was Night of the Big Heat, but uh, they put it out in theaters as Island of the Burning Damned, and then TV, that was too strong, so they changed it to Island of the Burning Doomed, which, you know, <laughs> doesn't have quite the same punch to it. <laughs> I love that movie, though, so, you know, whatever. Uh, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not one of my favorites, but it has its moments. I mean, anytime you get Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing together, it's, you know, it, there's something mm-hmm. there to enjoy. And if I remember right, that might be one that got released as a double feature with a kaiju movie. I don't know how I or why, right. but hey, you know. I think it came out over here with Godzilla's Revenge one of those movies i think it was one of the really you know these movies a lot better than i do i think it was one of the really juvenile ones so if it wasn't godzilla's revenge maybe it was son of godzilla it was godzilla's revenge i'm looking at a movie poster from it now which i'd love to own just because it's such a weird (laughs) mix of the two what a double bill yeah there's a mix (laughs) there's an experience maybe that's when you go to the drive-in with your kids let them all watch godzilla's revenge and put them to sleep in the back of the van and then watch island of the burning damned that's true. That that movie's a little bit more mature in its in its uh, themes and so forth. So yeah, they're very very different. There you <laughs> <movies>. go. <laughs> well, I'm I enjoyed this movie uh, a lot more than I thought I was going to. I was still kind of hesitant getting into this. Troy's talked to me about this one a few times. I'm like I I appreciate Troy coming on and talking about my Bela Lugosi movies. So let let let's, let's see what he can bring to the table. And this one really changed my mind. I didn't expect to like it going in, but I am walking away from it really enjoying it. I'd say it's probably one of my favorite movies I saw for the first time this year. Good. I'm glad you liked it. I mean, I I always recommend it to people. And, you know, again, it's yeah, <laughs> torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. I mean, it just doesn't sound very promising. I know that. But uh, if, you, if you are a fan of the gothics of the 60s and you can appreciate that kind of vibe, it has all of the um, – all of the good elements. Uh, you have a beautiful heroine, a, uh, a strapping uh, hero, a, a dastardly villain, and great cinematography, a quirky music score, uh, some colorful supporting characters. And uh, I, I don't think, I mean, it's it's not boring and it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's, it's well paced and uh, it just has this wonderful atmosphere. It's one of those movies that, you know, if you've, if you've never seen it, just to see. Even if you just watched in isolation that that long stretch where they're journeying through the countryside, there's just something in that that's, I think, really, really magical that has not dated in the least. Agreed. I was surprised that it was only an hour 20. I could have gone another 20 minutes with this because I enjoyed it so much. Uh, and, and while it does kind of drag a little bit there in the, in the middle, like I said, the end bit where they're running through the castle and checking out all these well, torture chamber rooms, it feels like a dark ride with the lights on. So it's it's a lot of fun there, too. I want to know more about the director. I want to know more about the, the German side of Euro cinema during this era. I, I don't know very much about it, so I may off, off mic ask Troy to give me some titles to check out, you know, creamy movies and things like that, because I need to know more. This was fun. Well, it's fun for me. I was glad to revisit it. I hadn't actually watched it uh, for a couple of years, so... I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen it, but, you know, probably the first time I saw it, I was about uh, eight or nine, maybe ten. So, you know, over the, over the past 30 years, I've certainly revisited many times. Different edits, different lengths, um, different quality. Again, uh, if you like the film, I don't know if it's still in print. Um, I hope it is. I hope that it can be had for a reasonable sum. Track down that German DVD because uh, at least there you really get that uh, robust color that uh, is very Bava-esque. 
definitely going to keep my eyes out for that. Apparently, it was also released as a double feature by Legend uh, with Death Smiles on a Murderer, which I've also not seen. It's a Kinski film, so I'm sure you've seen it. That's a weird one. <laughs> but supposedly, there's a commentary track on that one, so I'd be interested to hear the commentary track on that. There is. It's not... Um it's not bad. I don't. I don't remember who did it. I just. I remember thinking it doesn't really say much about. I. I don't know. It's more of a kind of just a laid back kind of having fun with the movie, which isn't a bad thing. I, I don't mind when when people you know have fun with the movies instead of you know making uh, overinflated claims for them. But I don't recall there being a lot of substance to it. But if you can find that, uh, the the transfer on it is not nearly as good as the German one, but it's watchable. And uh, Death Smiles uh, at Murder is a is a very very strange movie. It's one of those movies where um, Klaus Kinski is billed first, and he's in it for like you know five minutes. Ah, so okay, go, go forth uh, go forth according. But it's a very it's an interesting movie. I don't want to talk too much about it here, but it's a really weird, uh, dreamlike and kind of bizarre movie too. And uh, I kind of liked it. You know, not all commentary tracks can be Troy Howarth commentary tracks. Okay. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Which is a segue I'm going to set up here for Troy to tell us about what's going on with you and your commentary tracks. Is anything new out there? I think I have eight lined up that I, I can't say anything about, unfortunately, but uh, there are definitely some titles in there that I know that you will like. Um, there's some I'm very excited to be doing, uh, some Giallo, some British horror and so forth. So there, there, there's some good stuff coming. Uh, as far as things that have come out recently, uh, Severin put out a Blu-ray of The Devil's Honey, which is a Lucio Fulci kind of erotica film. Very good film, and I did a little audio essay on it. Um, not a full commentary, but like a 15-20 minute audio essay. Um, I did a commentary for the Blue Underground release of the Stendhal Syndrome, the Dario Argento movie. came out recently. Lucio Fulci's uh, Don't Torture a Duckling from Arrow, that came out recently. I did a track for that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think. Portrait of Jenny, which is kind of an unusual uh, title for me in, in that I, usually I get hired to do uh, you know, European horror movies. This is a American uh, romantic fantasy, but quite a good film. Uh, Kino put it out, and I did a track for that. Uh, so, yeah, lots. I've had lots of stuff lately, and there's there's plenty more to come. And anything on the writing front for you? The uh, third and final volume of So Deadly, So Perverse has been submitted to the publisher, but it's just a question of what they can do as far as their schedule goes. I imagine it will be out next year. The 1940s volume of Tome of Terror, my half of it is done. I'm not sure if my co-writer, Chris Workman, has actually finished his half yet or not. But that, again, hopefully next year will be out. Um I uh, have a book on the films of Paul Nashi coming up, but I'm not sure when that will be out, uh, presumably next year. That's that's a project I'm very excited about, very proud to be doing. Uh, Paul Nashi deserves all the love and attention he gets after being ignored in uh, critical circles and so forth for many, many years. Um, uh, doing that with the blessing of his sons, Bruno and Sergio, both of whom have done forewords for the book, so... Uh, definitely want to do their father proud 3D. Right on. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that, and we'll definitely have you back on the show at some point. Uh, plenty of movies to talk about with you, man. Absolutely. I always have more ideas. <laughs> Thanks again, Troy. 
I know I just said it, but huge thanks to Troy for being part of the show. I loved having him on because I learned something every time he comes on to talk about a movie with me. If it's a movie I've not seen, or even if it is a movie I have seen, Troy drops the knowledge on Monster Kid Radio. Huge thanks. Go over to Amazon and just type in the name Troy Howarth. You're going to find some of his books. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes as well. And yeah, we'll definitely have him back on the show sometime next year. A mysterious wave of murders terrorizes the entire city of London. Do all of you girls have everything you need? Scotland Yard calls the unknown killer the Hunchback of Soho. Miss Wanda Merville declares herself ready to take over her father, Lord Donald Perkins, estate and effects. You heard what he said. He's downstairs? Yes. And the girls? They're all asleep. I should. Yes. You. In cold blood, they plot the perfect murder. Let me out! Let me out! Who's responsible for the failure of the police in the Soho case? Certainly not I. Who that? Who have you got looking for the strangler? One of my best officers, Inspector Hopkins. This is Miss Merville's passport. However, you're not Wanda Merville. How do you know that the girl you met yesterday was really Miss Merville and not someone who was impersonating her? Who is the mastermind behind these fanatical crimes? Who is behind the hunchback of Soho? No one escapes his deadly traps. Where is he? He is everywhere. No! Who will be his next victim? This so-called decent home is more horrible than any jail I've seen. Inspector shouldn't have any feelings, my dear Hopkins. <laughs> In the head. No! What on earth was that? I heard somebody scream just now. The strangler has struck again. Another girl. And strangled again. I see no one is indispensable around here. They're holding me in this house as a prisoner. I have something important to tell you. She discovered a certain secret. She wouldn't give me the details. I'm calling on behalf of Wanda Merrill. She's... I wouldn't think of it. Do you understand me now? It means that somewhere in London right now, the real Wanda Merville is in the greatest danger. He's following me. He wants to kill oh, me. That's incredible. I'm glad that I came along then. Don't be afraid, child. I'll protect you. The enemy! The enemy! Where is he? I'll tell you once more. Any contact with the outside is forbidden and will be punished. Severely punished. That's not only for you, but for all of you. They're quite obedient, considering everything. Only... Uh, only what, David? You know, Auntie, once in a while I do wish some of them would try to open their hearts and speak to us frankly. A ruthless killer plays a dangerous game for the highest stakes. Oh, no! 
are you doing to me? Who is the hunchback of Soho? The sensational solution will leave you breathless. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Filmax, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune into B-MovieCast at bmoviecast.com. Come out of there. Your game's finished, my friend. Here is a story of cold-blooded murder. If her face is especially intriguing, once in a while I make a duplicate for my own pleasure. One of these faces, a girl, is still alive. You feel sorry for her, you mean? I do, too. How solid do you think this is? Ronnie! Inspector Potter's been murdered. What? Inspector Potter's been murdered? Yeah. Here. The Sinister Monk. A young girl is murdered at a famous English boarding school near London. I'm afraid that your man mistook Lola for Gwendolyn. What? My man? Yes, your man. What's this? Did you hire a paid killer? The entire country lives in terror. The newspapers call the mad killer the sinister monk. The monk, the monk was here! I'm scared. I'm so scared. I'm the caretaker at the school. My name's Smith, if I may take the liberty of mentioning You're coming with us. I'm innocent, sir. Why are you trembling, then? Who is he? Who is the sinister monk? The first question to ask is, why did he do it? I wonder what your assailant hoped to gain by attacking you. Is his motive money? And this is a document giving me, as your lawyer, full power of attorney over your estate. Since there isn't any will, I suggest that we wait. Aren't you afraid of the monk? Maybe I'm the monk. <coughs> the monk, the monk. If he's a monk, then I'm a nun. Has she something to hide? Many people have seen the ghost of a monk walking in the moonlight. What was that? We're always suspicious of the first one on the scene of the crime. But you were the first. Who is his next victim? Stop! <laughs> well, well, you're not wearing your monk's costume today? You don't seriously believe I'm the monk? Look, uh, you better watch out. Tomorrow morning at dawn, I want a helicopter to keep a permanent watch. And no police insignia. Whoever gets in the way of the sinister monk is a dead man. It is outrageous. 
that this could happen right under the very noses of the police. Scotland Yard uses every means at its disposal to capture the ruthless murderer. Nobody knows what he looks like. Here comes the chief. And from the girl's description, anyone at all could be the monk. Even you. The sinister monk guards his deadly secret. Do not tell anybody. But the sensational revelation will astound you. I would say, yeah. Don't miss the sinister monk. a message on Facebook from listener Stephen who says just enjoyed the Gamera episode just out of curiosity why do you showcase and play surf or garage rock in each episode was it just a good idea or are you a big fan of the genre you know <laughs> I have become a big fan of the genre I wasn't a huge fan well okay let me take this back I was a fan of surf, of instrumental surf prior to Monster Kid Radio. However, I didn't really get exposed to the the breadth and depth of the subgenre, this genre of music, until I launched MKR. I didn't realize that there was so much out there. In fact, when I first launched the show, I was a little concerned that I was going to run out of music to play, that there weren't going to be that many bands for me to reach out to and you know, get permission to play their music on the show. Well, fortunately, there is still so much out there for me to discover. I don't know what it is about surf music and monster movies, but in my mind, they just blend so well together. Because I don't know as much about the genre, I couldn't speak as to why. It just feels right. And I love it. I love my instrumental surf music. My iPod that I carry with me pretty much 24-7 is stuffed to the eye gills with film score music. Most of it's classic monster movie stuff, hammer films, kaiju films, things like that. But it's also got a ton of instrumental surf. The music that I play here on the show, the bands that have allowed me to play their music on the show, free downloads. You can find some bands that put their music up for free on places like Bandcamp and it's just something that makes me happy. <laughs> so I wanted to share that with people here on the show. And I'm thrilled that I've discovered so many bands over the years playing their music on Monster Kid Radio. And, you know, a handful of them have become friends of mine. And, you know, the people that have played on Monster Kid Radio, these are just the people that have responded to my emails asking for permission to play their music on the show. I'd say... You know, I only hear back from about 65, 75% of the people, the bands that I reach out to. If they all gave me permission to play their music on the show, well, man, I'd, <laughs> I'd be overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, it's just something that I enjoy. I'm glad you dig it too. You know, I did post on Facebook not too long ago. Uh, some music from a band called the Seatopians. Probably going to play them on the show in the near future. That band reached out to me and asked me to check it out and you know talk about it. And yeah, it's it's good stuff. So uh, stay tuned because I'll be playing some Seatopians on the show in the near future. Stephen, thank you for reaching out to me on Facebook. 
So Facebook is one of the ways you can reach out and contact Monster Kid Radio. Just head over there and look up the Monster Kid Radio page or group. Or you can interact with the show a little more traditionally by sending me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at our Google voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback and encouragement online. Well, let me strike that and take that back. Timothy Price has gotten a lot of encouragement online. His Monster Kid Chronicles launched last week here on Monster Kid Radio, episode one. The story is called They're Coming to Get You, Timmy, and it is a lot of fun. Go check out the last week's episode, if you haven't yet, to hear his original story fully produced by him. Timothy is going to be on the show in the near future, probably sometime first part of 2018. We're going to talk about his books and some other things, and just it's going to be a lot of fun. So, you know, again, if you haven't heard it, man, go back and check it out. Plus, I don't know if people know this, but uh, if you subscribe to the show through iTunes or some other podcatcher, on December 11th, which is this past Monday, at 2.43 p.m. Phoenix, Arizona time, you got a podcast. You got an episode, the very first episode of something that I'm calling KTVX Fairvale. You see, Chris McMillan and I went to a screening of Psycho and the documentary 7852 Hitchcock's Shower Scene and recorded a little bit there. And I thought, you know what? Let's have a dedicated Psycho show. We're only going to have an episode of KTVX Fairvale once a year, every December 11th at 2.43 p.m. So there's plenty of time for you to get caught up on the one singular episode. Head over to monsterkidradio.net to check out the archives. Monsterkidradio.net is also where you're going to find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, links to all the music that we play, everything that we talk about in the episodes. It's right there in the show notes. And I make sure that I post a trailer for what's coming up next week on the show. Next week, we've got old favorites, Joshua Kennedy, Stephen D. Sullivan, coming back to Monster Kid Radio. They're going to be talking with me about the Hammer film classic, The Reptile. In this remote little country village, the mortal remains of a man are laid to rest. Who is it this time, Peter? It's Mr. Spaulding. They found him this morning. Just like the others. Just like the others, he died in the night. Get away from there! Get away! Suddenly, violently, horribly. This is an evil place. Corrupt and evil. Evil, as venomous as a snake, turns the quiet of this village into a writhing hell on earth. Where every man fears for his safety and his sanity. Where everyone is suspect. Do you mean they died by some sort of magic? Some witchcraft? For the first time in my life, I'm frightened. Everyone is frightened. The doctor who'd lived his life in the East. This man who could be the next victim. This woman and this girl are frightened, hypnotized by the crawling, creeping spell of the reptile. Stop! Pack your things, we're leaving. No, Dr. Franklin. You are not leaving. I could kill you. Possibly. But you could never be free then, could you? And what would happen to little Anna then? Trapped like animals in a cage and getting closer and closer, suffocating them with terror, 
the reptile. Of course, we're going to talk about a few other things as well. This will be the first time the three of us have all spoken together since Monster Bash earlier this year. So we're going to catch up a little bit on that. Talk a little bit about the screening of Theseus and the Minotaur because, well, that's where it debuted. Probably talk a little bit about Veronica Carlson as well. And I have a recording with Veronica Carlson I'm intending to put into next week's episode. Fingers crossed that we're going to be able to make that happen. And speaking of Hammer Actresses, we just lost one. Susanna Lee, who was in Lust for a Vampire and the movie The Lost Continent, which was the movie that Scott Morris and I just talked about over at 1951 Down Place, uh, just recently passed away. She, in fact, passed away on Monday. She had been battling cancer, and uh, cancer sucks. And just want to acknowledge her and the impact that she's had on Hammer Films and genre cinema in general. Last week, uh, we also lost somebody, not a Hammer actress, but an Ed Wood actor, Conrad Brooks, who was the last of the Ed Wood troupe of actors and actresses. As with Susanna Lee, I never had an opportunity to meet Conrad Brooks. Although I did talk to him on the phone years ago when I used to do the zombie movie podcast, Mail Order Zombie, I thought, you know what, it'd be cool to reach out to him and get him on the show to talk about Plan 9 from Outer Space because it's a zombie movie, right? Well, I talked to him and the conversation was fun. He insisted on calling me Sport the entire time. Hey, Sport, how you doing, Sport? What do you think about this, Sport? And you know, I think back to that conversation, and while it did not lead to getting an interview with him for any podcast or anything else, it certainly was a thrill to talk to somebody who had worked with Ed Wood, Bela Lugosi, and all the rest. And <laughs> I wish I had gotten a proper interview with him or had, had an opportunity to run into him at a horror convention, because I know he did the convention circuit quite a bit. So rest in peace, Mr. Conrad Brooks. Rest in peace, Susanna Lee. Thank you for making an impact on us monster kids. I don't want to go out on a down note. So I want to thank you for listening. You. Yeah, yeah you. You monster kids and make monster kid radio what it is. Thank you for all of your support. I positively appreciate everything that you do for me when you share the post on Facebook or talk about Monster Kid Radio on Twitter. You know, somebody on Instagram actually just mentioned Monster Kid Radio not too long ago, thanking the podcast for introducing them to the films of Christopher R. Mim. That was really cool to get that shout out on Instagram. Didn't expect that. So that was awesome. Thanks for doing that. You know, I also appreciate all the likes on Facebook. If you are a Facebook user, please consider liking the Facebook page. And especially if you're an iTunes user, we're still trying to get more reviews in the iTunes store. Honest reviews. I mean, I'm not just saying a five star. I mean, whatever you think of Monster Kid Radio, I would love to get an honest review in the iTunes store. And it would be awesome if we could get to 100 reviews. Say, it's not going to happen by the end of the year, but maybe by mid-2018. Can you help us out? Anyway. Big thanks to you guys and gals. Thanks to Troy Howarth. Thanks to Jeff Polier and Dominique Lamsey's for being on this show. Kind of impromptu and last minute. That was a lot of fun. And thanks to everybody who gave me a birthday shout out on Facebook earlier this week. And big thanks to the band Total Death Mechanics. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show. You can pick up their new EP called The Nasty Pterodactyl. You can get the digital version for $4, the vinyl for 5 As they say, 
If you like your surf music with a bit of muscle, give them a listen. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Behold, the Bolt Surfer that belongs to the aforementioned band Total Death Mechanics. It's on their album, The Nasty Pterodactyl. You can find them on Bandcamp at totaldeathmechanics.bandcamp.com. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.